Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi, and I'm here with a very special guest, Carlos Welch, a.k.a. Hip Hop Trivia 101, a.k.a. Nitcast Satellite Strategy Coach, a.k.a. The Man with a Van. Carlos is a professional poker player and a writer for Poker News and Tournament Poker Edge. He also has a coaching practice, Mediocre Poker Coaching, and we will explain that name further in the pod. Today, he has brought us, for The Grid, King-Queen Offsuit, a hand that a lot of people have trouble with, and the hand is from an online World Series of Poker bracelet event, and the villain is none other than Phil Locke. And he defied his self-pronounced mediocre moniker and looked to play truly great poker in his hand. Welcome, Carlos. Hi. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about this hand. Set it up for us. When and where did it take place? So this hand was at the beginning of June, uh, one of the first events during the World Series of Poker. And it was a $400 buy-in online bracelet event. And um, yeah, I just happened to be at the table with Phil Locke. (laughs) It's not something I'm really used to. And how did you know that you were playing against Phil Locke? To be fair, I'm not 100% sure it's Phil Locke, but his screen name says Phil Locke. So if it's not him, hopefully he will like let us know. But I'm just going to go with it until he sends me a cease and desist letter. <laughs> All right. So Phil Locke called Phil Locke online and you were playing this hand. And it was rather deep at this point. Yes. So I'm 160 bigs deep and Phil has a table covered. I'm, a, I'm in second and he has a little bit over 200 bigs. So 200 bigs deep and uh, Phil Locke opens, you said under the gun? Yes, so Phil opens um, under the gun. We're at the 100-200 level. Um, There's a 25 um, chip ante and it's nine handed. He opens to 450 and I am in the hijack with king-queen offsuit. Now I did say Uh, this is kind of like a rare thing for me. I don't generally play against good players, but in fact, I have played with Phil before. So Phil was at my day one table the very first time I played the main event, which was 2015. So I had like an entire day of um, experience with him. And what I remember from back then is that he opened way more hands from early position than I've ever learned was correct. And that same thing kind of applied in this hand. He was opening a lot from early position. Since 2015, what I've learned is that these pros are able to like kind of um, open more hands than they should be allowed to because us recreational players do not three bet enough. Now, um, when you played against him in the 2015 World Series of Poker Main, he was opening a lot in early position. Did you get to see a lot of showdowns to see some hands in the grid that you wouldn't expect him to be playing? I 
don't remember. I'm sure there were some, but nothing too outlandish that it would have stuck in my memory. But there's definitely um, just the frequency of, of number of time he's open. And I didn't see a whole lot of showdowns, but maybe I saw something like, say, I don't know, 10-8 suited that you know, from my studies, that's like a bad open at a full table, but not when people aren't three betting. So you can kind of get away with it. So maybe I saw a hand like that. I definitely didn't see anything like six deuce suited, something like that. Right, right. Because so, I yeah. would have remembered that one. <laughs> yeah, more like just like a bit like playing like a middle position open as opposed to an early position open. Exactly, exactly. Got it. All right. So not too crazy, but crazier than you expect. And in this um, hand, what went through your head? You have the king queen off in the hijack. Yes. So normally myself and a lot of recreation a lot of other recreational players would prefer to like flat this hand. You don't even consider it for a three bet. But since like I would have never done this like, you know, two thousand fifteen against Phil Lock. I might have folded it. <laughs> you know, it's just like fear. But now since that time I've learned that okay, if these guys are clearly out of line with their opens, you have to work in some like three bets. And so I thought this was a pretty good candidate for it. Um, a couple of blockers to the four betting range. Also plays okay if called. I thought this was a good one to um three bet. Yeah, and I think that King Queen is a hand that sometimes people have issues with because if they're not ready with the ranges they could give off live tells because honestly, King Queen in a situation like this, you could do any of three things. Yeah, exactly. And so that kind of bears out in the um, Poker Snowy analysis that I've ran this hand through. The hand is um, basically a split between um, calling and folding. It doesn't have a, um, a super high EV anyway, so it, you wouldn't be making a bad mistake if you fold this hand. So basically what you say is true is like, you know, all three options are, are close here. And one thing that I have learned from Andrew, and um, he recently wrote a book, um, Play Optimal Poker. And one thing he talks about is whenever you have these mixed strategies where a GTO um, AI would um, do things at certain percentages, instead of trying to mimic that because we can't um, as humans, we just realize that this means it almost doesn't matter what you do. And so you should use you should make the play that makes the most sense against this particular opponent. And so, like I said, because I thought Phil was opening too much because we were not three banning enough, this felt like the right time to three bet this hand for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I am looking at the poker snowy and yeah, it's giving a very thin EV for call, raise, and fold. And you did put in the uh, big, the, the annies. So this isn't yes. a big blind annie because it's an online tournament, but it's about the same in terms of the percentage of the pot. Yes, yes. So you decided to three bet and your sizing um, was pre-planned. So uh, my sizing is bigger than I think most people would use here. So Phil made it 450 and I made it 1900, which is a little bit more than 4X's bet. And but it's really only a pot size raise. Pot would be 1875 here. And the reason I chose a bigger size here is because over the past year or so, I've been getting coaching from Ryan LaPlante. And one thing that he's taught me about is you have your standard three betting sizes in position and out of position, but when stacks are super deep, 
you need to kind of adjust that to like decrease the pot odds and implied odds that your opponents have on a call. I would think my guess is that most people will go like three and a half here in position and I decided to go like a little bit over four. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because in these three bet pots, the SPR can get stack to pot ratio can get pretty shallow. So even with the huge stacks to start the hand, so it, it looks kind of scary when you three bet that much because it almost seems like you're trying to get bet bet jam potentially. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was hoping that that's what he would think. <laughs> Phil Lock is a good player, and so I need to try to attempt to play GTO against him. But if we reverse the roles, he doesn't know me. So he's not necessarily trying to play GTO against me. He probably would assume something about my range that would be consistent with, you know, a recreational player who isn't trying to, you know, approximate GTO. And I, w I don't think he would have a hand like this in my range. So I'm hoping that, you know, I can scare him away. That would have been great. <laughs> but unfortunately, it didn't work this time. Yeah, so he uh, he called your race. Yeah, so everyone else fold and then Phil calls. And we get a pretty decent flop um, for my hand. Um, jack of clubs, nine of spades, and two of clubs. And I have the king of clubs. So two overs, a gutter, and a backdoor flush draw. So again... Phil checks to me here, and I think most people um, bet in this spot. Um, most people, I think, see bet pretty much, like, way more than they should. Some people may be close to 100% in this spot. But again, and, and against an, a recreational player, uh, I would probably do that also. But here I'm thinking, okay, what would Poker Snowy do? That was my thought process in his hand. So Phil checks to me, and now Poker Snowy chooses a bet sizing ahead of time. So what would be the bet, the best bet sizing to use here? And then decide whether or not it wants to use that bet size or not. And so it says that the best bet size to use would be a quarter pot bet. And given that that's the option, quarter pot, quarter pot bet or check, it chooses to um, bet. Now, if you force it to use a bigger bet sizing it still bets half pot but it's a little less excited about yes. it yes and then once you go to, to full pot it says now that um checking is uh the best option snowy is different in that it's a uh, neural net and it kind of plays it against itself to kind of determine what uh it thinks the best strategy is so it's different from um a uh, piece of software like Pio for sure and I, what I wanted to say about that is in Pio, I input my range and Phil's range and I can make some guesses about that range. Whereas here, we're basically, the ranges are, we didn't input any ranges. They're based on like Snowy's massive database of hands from everybody who's played and like years and years against it, right? Right. And playing itself. Even though Snowy says one thing, what you did, it's fine, right? Right. And, yeah. it, and it's close either way. Um, Snowy kind of values my decision not to bet here as a loss of about half a big blind. God, that sounds like a lot. Half a big blind. Wow, I'm surprised by that. Yeah. That it thinks you lose that much. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, because just checking uh, seems completely reasonable as well. So that is what you did. So what happened is I checked back and the turn was the king of diamonds. And now Phil checks to me again. So now I have top pair. First of all, what did Snowy tell you to do? So Snowy says that um, the turn should always be a check. By Phil or by you? By me. Okay. By me. And you got it right. Um, yes. How much did it prefer that? By like by a lot? Or just if you remember approximately thought? This one was by a lot. It says that on the turn I should either bet pot or check back. That feels close to what 
makes sense here to me. So you checked. So, so far, you, you're pretty happy with the way you played this hand, right? Yes. Under the pressure of this Phil Locke? Yes, yes. I'm pretty happy with it so far. And so I checked back, and then the river is an offsuit six. I believe it was the six of hearts. So total blank. Nobody yeah. could ever make anything on this card. Complete blank. And yeah. Phil bets for 4100 into a pot of roughly 43 so to me, this is like just the easiest call ever. Can't really raise, can't really fall. So I call and he has pocket sixes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were trying to we were trying to foreshadow that a little bit. Yes, yes. Uh, but fortunately, this is where because I am human, I can learn a lot from this hand because that six came. <laughs> if that's the, if, the, if the river card was a seven and it just goes check checking out win, we wouldn't be talking about this hand now. Or if you check, if it goes check bet and he folds. Right? Yeah. Then you yeah. definitely don't talk about it. Right, right. You just don't know what he has, so it's a little bit less interesting to study. In yes. That, in that way, because you don't have that dramatic showdown moment. One thing that, you know, Ryan talks about a lot is, you know, putting myself in these tricky spots to kind of, like, get better at them. So it's like, yeah, they, like some of these spots are tricky to me because I don't have experience with them because I'm always trying to avoid them. And so um, he's been coaching me to basically do what Phil does. He is just like opening more hands at tables where people want three bet. And that kind of puts you in tough spots. But you kind of learn as you go. You know, Phil may have taught me a lesson here. He got the chips. <laughs> it's not that you play the hand badly or even that betting on the flop, like not betting on the flop is a big mistake. But it's more about like the psychology behind it, I feel yes. like is flawed. That's more of the bigger error that could be a bigger issue in some other situation where, like I was talking about the big blind versus button, like yes. suppose you have like two strong over cards and like you got like the nine, eight, eight flop and you get check raised and you know they can check raise that flop a lot and therefore you don't bother flatting because you get scared even though you realize they might be doing it too much or even God forbid you even fold like let's say nine, eight, eight and you fold the nine because right. you suddenly get paranoid. That's where you could be giving up a lot of money. Yes, and you know what? It's like baby steps. Like I mentioned, when I played against Phil in 2015, I wouldn't have even three bet this hand. So it's taken three years, but I've grown enough to the point where I'm willing to three bet the king queen off in this spot. And maybe it'll take another three years before I'm willing to see better and call a check raise. For me, it takes these kind of like, you know, real world in-game lessons to kind of like, get used to um, playing in these tricky spots. And what other hands on the grid do you feel like you have to kind of branch out to in order to get yourself in more of those tricky spots? Like, is there a hand in particular that, you know, you showed Ryan, who was on the grid before, by the way, mm -hmm. talking about king-queen suited, so the mirror image of oh, your hand. Wow. And he was talking about that as well, like opening more hands. Is there any hands where, like, you folded it and he was like, no, you really have to start playing this hand? Um, yes. So a lot of my play is online on Bavada, mm -hmm. which is like some of the softest games I've ever seen in my life. And so I brought him my hand history from Bavada and he saw how bad the play was and he gave me like an opening range from early position and it was like 40% of hands. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. Like Queen Do Suited, for example, is a hand that if I'm playing like say two, three hundred big blinds deep on Bavada and I get dealt the hand under the gun and I don't open it, Ryan would make a comment about it. He's like, you have to be willing to play this hand. Is that six packs? No. <laughs> this is a uh, full ring. And this is me trying to uh, remember his reasoning, but they don't three bet enough 
when they do three bet, they use two smaller sizings for um, stack depth. And also they will make mistakes post flop. Say for example, if they make a smaller flush draw than I do, they will lose their stack with it. But if they you know, make a bigger flush draw to me, I'm not necessarily gonna lose my stack. So it's like, you can open these type of hands and have less, fewer reverse implied odds when you're playing against a weaker field. I've talked to other very strong players about that issue, about opening really, really bad hands when you're playing against weak players. And actually not everybody agrees with that. Some people think that money you get against bad players is also just from winning bigger pots against them with your normal ranges or maybe like a slightly larger range. So there is like some debate, I think, on that point although one thing that's very hard to pin very good players down on is their ranges and how they change them because once you start studying post-flop play you realize that knowing people's pre-flop ranges is like the complete key to their overall strategy so that's the one thing that people really try to guard they'll tell you something about the flop and analyzing the turn and river but they often don't give you like their exact range if you ask them about it even like you know just casually. Yeah. I want to go back to your own coaching practice because you're talking about taking lessons from Ryan LaPlan, but your own coaching practice is mediocre poker coaching. So how do you come up with this name and what kind of players does it attract? First of all, I'm a massive hip hop fan, as you can tell from my Twitter handle. I just love the rhyming, (laughs) mediocre poker, but it also reflects humility too many poker players, they think they're like God's, you know, gift to poker. And so I recognize the fact that I'm not as good, but that's okay as long as I play against worse people. <laughs> and so that's why I generally try to avoid people like Phil Lock. But the, the beauty of poker is that you don't have to be good to do this for a living. You can be a mediocre poker player as long as you play against horrible poker players. And there's a lot of horrible poker players that are willing to play for a lot of money. Very few of us are in the top 100 on GPI. And to the top 10, the bottom 90th through 100, like those are mediocre poker players by comparison. It's just humility, admitting that you're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And having having some grace. So one thing I tell my students is like, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but it's not the end of the world. Have some grace for yourself. You know, it's okay. It's okay. I love that. I like that philosophy. My only concern with that mediocre moniker is does it ever become like an excuse if you make play a hand bad, where it's like, well, okay, I'm just a mediocre poker player. So what what, what did you expect? No, no, I wouldn't use it as an excuse. I would say that it kind of gives you permission to learn from these hands that you screw up. Like, for example, this hand, for example, I would kind of write this hand off as like, oh, I got two out on the river in a standard spot and not try to study from it if I thought I was on Phil's level. But because I understand that, you know, by comparison, I'm a mediocre poker player, this is a spot that I, I need to study. So for my students, if they mess up in a spot, it's not that, you know, they can just write off like, oh, I suck at poker anyway. I'm supposed to mess up. No, it's an opportunity to realize that you may have done something wrong and that's an opportunity to learn from it like i'm constantly trying to learn about gto poker but i don't get to apply it very often because i play in um um, super soft um, fields so when i get an opportunity to kind of put it in practice i really dive in and try to learn from it that makes a lot of sense and i think that's also powerful because with so many people trying to approximate gto strategies even if they're not playing in high rollers um, perhaps sometimes they need to scale back and think about just playing the best play in their game right and you can learn what is correct 
and that's going to help you deviate from it more profitably against your uh, opponents. And that's something that Andrew talks about a lot in his book. Yeah, it's really dangerous. Like for instance, aggressive check raising strategies, usually programs play very aggressive check raising strategies. So go ahead, because I'm glad you brought that up. So suppose you're playing, you're studying some spot and you're looking at it with a solver and they have such an aggressive check raising strategy, but at the end of the hand, villain doesn't have any good hands left because they checked raise flop or turn, so then you can go bananas. Yeah, yeah, because they've kind of like, you know, fired all their bullets. Or they're really capped. You take that strategy and use it against humans at your local casino who are like <laughs> potentially terrified if they don't have something close to the nuts, rather than the solver that's like, oh, top pair, third kicker. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get it in ASAP, right? Yeah, yeah, you're and right. And so that to me is also like one of the concerns that like if you're not actively thinking all the time, are my opponents actually playing like this? You could actually be shooting yourself in the foot. That that's why I like mediocre poker. You don't have to think this hard just to figure out how to like, you know, play these hands well. Yeah. So you said that you're a big hip hop fan, right? Your hip hop trivia 101 on Twitter. Yes. Um, which hip hop stars would make the best poker player? Which hip hop stars would make the best poker players? I would say that Jay-Z is probably, I know he does play a lot of poker, um, but he's kind of like Phil Ivey in that like they're super secretive about everything. So I don't know if he's good or not. I'm sure those two guys have probably played with each other before. Uh, is that a game you'd want to get into? It's a game that I would love to rail. I don't want to be at the table with Phil Ivey. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm probably better than Jay-Z, but... If Phil Ivey's at the table, I'm not one of these guys that have fantasy of playing with their favorite players. Like, I want to play against the worst people I can find with money. So if you put me at that table without Phil Ivey, I would love to play against Jay-Z. But Phil Ivey's at the table, I would love to just rail the game. Who's your favorite poker player? My favorite poker player is Andrew Brokus. Brokus, all right. <laughs> yes, the guy with the optimal plan and the yes. optimal poker plan. Yes. Actually, we just had a, a hand against Phil Ivey, and it was one that he lost. Looking forward to listening to the episode when it comes out. <laughs> it's a real good one. So Phil Ivey, Jay-Z, you on the round, still imagining this. So Jay-Z, yeah, I see because he's such a great businessman. You can imagine he'd be really good at poker, right? Yeah. I mean, for a celeb, celeb obviously, right. he's going to get fleeced by Phil Ivey. Yeah, he, he seems to have a pretty cool and calm demeanor also so i don't think he will like tilt um as much as some other like hip-hop stars would and uh who would be like really bad so when i think of a really bad player i would think of someone with like anger issues someone that's kind of like um impulsive and dmx is like the first name that came to mind he might be the poster child <laughs> he might be the poster child for this what should we be listening to that we're not listening to now honestly most of the current popular rap stuff i don't like so i'm really into like stuff from the 90s but i will say for poker players a lot of this stuff from the 90s, especially Tupac, he was like my favorite rapper. And then recently, um, Nipsey Hussle, who unfortunately just lost his life a couple of months ago, his latest CD, which is called Victory Lap, has a lot of references to like entrepreneurship and just like making something out of nothing. And like some of the themes that you hear from like Tupac and from him, I kind of use it as motivation when I'm playing poker. Nipsey also has a song called Double Up, <laughs> which, you know, is uh, talking about like, you know, reinvesting his bankroll basically over and over again. So I listen to that when I get short. In my mind, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to double up soon. <laughs> so, like, yeah, they, like, if you really think about it creatively, you can find some motivational lines in rap music 
to kind of help your um, poker mentality. Definitely. That is powerful. R.I.P. That He was shot in L.A., right? Yes, yes. He actually uh, was shot in front of a clothing store that he um, opened there like a year ago that was doing some pretty um, revolutionary things in terms of, um, he called it a smart store. You could use like your smartphone to like... Uh, what is it called? The QR code on um, the merchandise. Like you get exclusive access to like videos and things. So it was a way to kind of help the artist get back in um, contact with the customer because that exclusive content you can't get from just like streaming on Spotify. Corporations have kind of like made it to where the artists are kind of losing contact with their customer like before. So his store was a way to kind of bring that back and like the exclusive merch. You had to go to the store to get it or buy it from his website. You know, he was all about these artists who come from nothing, not giving up their power to some corporation for like, which really turns out to be a small check in the beginning, but it's like the most money these guys have ever seen. And a lot of them don't even realize it's basically just a loan. You know, they have to pay that money back. He was more so about maintaining ownership. And that's something that I really respect. When you talk about him, I'm thinking about a quote I heard after he died about the importance of reinvesting in yourself rather than going out and buying stuff. Yes. And that really is similar to your philosophy of poker, that you want to like save as much as you can so that you have a bigger bankroll rather than... Yeah, yeah, bankroll. And that's why I do the van, because it's like I'm all about lowering expenses so that that gives me the freedom to kind of do this for a living, even though I'm not making the type of money money that a lot of people would need to make to support their more lavish lifestyles and that's why I can just stick to the mediocre games and be fine whereas if I needed like I don't know 200k a year then I couldn't get that plan you know some of the people I play against I'll have to kind of like you know learn how to beat Phil Lock and Phil Ivy which is not worth it to me <laughs> well like, hey that's a big jump yeah, that is a big job. Beating mediocre games to Phil Ivy. That's true. There's got to be some good. There's some other fields in Some very somewhere. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even excellent. Right, right, Before right. we're getting to like the world class very levels. True. Very true. So if you did get to mediocre to good, or you probably already have, but you like this word mediocre because it rhymes with poker. Yes. You've already kind of raising your level consistently, but if you is there a point at which your level will reach an area where you say, okay, I'm going to buy X, or is it all going to go back into the bankroll so you can play bigger games? People always ask me about if I would move out of the van if I final table the main event or something like that. And my answer is no. When I play the main event, I've played it three times. And um, every time I've played it, I've sold tons of action. So I maybe have like 20, 30% of myself. So if I make the final table, first of all, it's not like, you know, a big chunk of money anyway. And even if I kind of walked away with a million dollars, I still wouldn't want to like, you know, take that money and like give it to some bank in order to like mortgage a house that I'm really just getting because people think you're supposed to get it. Like I don't have a house because I don't want a house. I could go get a mortgage tomorrow if I wanted to. So no, if I, if I did really well in poker, I'll probably get a new van <laughs> but you know I was still like I, I enjoy my lifestyle the way it is and that's not it's not limited by the amount of money I have yeah it makes sense because um, when you're a traveling poker player you don't need a uh, one residence no so you really do need more of a mobile residence or at least renting yes if you don't have a family which I don't it's just like 
a wasted house that's just like sitting and you know like I'm from Atlanta so if I had a house it would just be sitting empty in Atlanta for like two months in the summer or wherever else I'm traveling throughout the year so um, it just doesn't make sense to me to kind of like have these things that society says you're supposed to have when when you really think about it you don't want them they don't necessarily make you happy they're just like you know leaks in my mind now speaking of leaks for those of us who have a house, have a family, well, not even people who don't have a family, they aren't ready to make the step of living in a van like you do. Uh, is there some like really obvious leak that you see amongst poker players that they could fill? One is massages. That's weird. I don't understand why people just have to, because you're playing poker, you just have to constantly be getting massaged the entire time. Like no other portion of your life is that a thing. Like, nobody, like, gets massages when they're at the movie theater. So, like, why is it just because you're sitting in a chair for this time, you have to pay? I don't even know what the price is, but I know it's, like, pretty high. So, like, massages are weird to me. Like, I don't understand that. Like, some of it's, like, really small things, like the water. Like, they're just constantly, like, you know, getting, like, little bottles of water for, you know, a dollar tip at a time. Like, just bring your own water to the casino with you. I don't understand that. In a water bottle. Yeah, you just bring, just like, you know, I have a friend, um, Leo, Leo Wolper, he would bring, like, a gallon, he would just walk around with a gallon of water with him. Looks weird, but, you know, that could be an asset in poker also to look weird. But the massages is probably, that that's the big thing that I see a lot of people doing when, like, a lot of them probably aren't even winning players. It's just, like, wasting bankroll on massages for some reason. Well, I have a lot of life roll leaks. Uh, I just love to spend money. I am completely untempted by the massages. So you actually found an answer that can't even help me. Yeah. Like, I got. I just because the reason I, I hate getting massages at the table, oh, and I feel bad because obviously the masseuses work hard and they're yes. amazing. I just struggle because I feel like if I get into a big pot and I'm getting massaged, it'll be harder <laughs> for me to focus. Yes. Other people find the opposite, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, any food that they sell at the Rio is just like massively overpriced. Don't buy those damn phone chargers. <laughs> Any non-poker money that you're spending at the Rio could probably be better spent elsewhere, in my opinion. And how about getting better at poker? I know that you have um, a very reasonably priced, considering it's on the Nitcast, it has to be reasonably priced, yes. right? Um, course with Andrew Brokast about satellites. Yeah, so the Single Table Satellite Strategy Premium Podcast that we recently put out can help people get better with those um we call them sit and goes but they're basically single table satellites if you're at the rio you can just play those for like lammers that are supposed to be used to buy into tournaments but you can also sell them for cash at face value and so that podcast is um 29 so that's a pretty reasonable investment for um pretty simple to learn strategy that you can kind of run over and over again against some of the worst players that you've seen in your life like you're not gonna see any of the fields playing the um, single table satellite so that kind of goes back to the mediocre poker thing like you can play against some pretty bad players for a reasonable amount of money without having to um, play in these big, you know, WSOP events. So I would imagine that 
a lot of people, if they got good at that strategy, uh, the single table satellites, you could probably make somewhere between maybe fifty to a hundred dollars an hour playing those if you um, really focus on it. And that's going to be a pretty decent hourly compared to a lot of the, the better players in these like marathon tournaments, like the literal marathon tournament. Like, how many hours does it take to like you know min cash that thing? At the end of the day, if you min cash that, you probably made ten bucks an hour, maybe if that. And you probably had to get through a much tougher um, competition to get there. So I really like the single table satellites. They're right up my alley. Yeah, no, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think it's the glory that people are often after. Yeah, yeah you don't get a bracelet. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get a bracelet when you win a single table satellite. So yeah, the glory is probably the um, biggest um, money leak for poker players that are trying to chase the glory. That's that's probably the bigger one. I'd agree with that. And I, I mentioned the training stuff because I think that... Honestly, most of the training sites out there are phenomenal. They they give out fantastic information. But I do think that sometimes I see a lot of friends buy the things and not actually watch them. Yeah. So I think that's a huge leap because it's this kind of aspirational. I'll, I'll buy this course and like I'll listen to it. And, you know, that's like $800 sometimes. And if you don't actually listen to it, then you've really sunk a lot of money. Yeah. I, I have a lot of friends who, and maybe this is most people, but they enjoy playing poker a lot more than they enjoy studying it. And for me, it's the opposite. I don't really enjoy playing very much, but I love studying poker. I love going over hands. I love watching training courses. So if you're going to invest that type of money into something, you need to kind of develop that love to actually put it to use. I agree. I, well, actually, I'm the same way too. I love studying and talking about poker, which is one reason I started The Grid. And, uh, you know, it was fantastic having you on to talk about King Queen Off. Yeah. That was a really fascinating hand. I think a lot of people got to know more about you, your philosophy on snowy, on hip hop. Embrace mediocrity. That, I think, will change a lot of people's lives for the better because a lot of people really hurt themselves and others trying to, like, be way too ambitious. I think it just depends on the person. For some people, it can be it could be hard if they already have like lower self esteem and they need to be brought up. Right. But right, for right. somebody who's already up in the clouds trying to play like a GTO robot before they've gone through all of these steps, you know. Yes. This philosophy is so powerful. Yes. So you can tell us about how we can follow you. Hip Hop 101 Trivia is probably the best way to get in contact with me. And for coaching, it's MediocrePokerCoaching.com. And thanks so much to a Carlos Hip Hop 101 Trivia yes. at Twitter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. Thing.